Welcome to this MTech Access podcast. At MTech Access, we offer a complete global market access service from strategy through to implementation. In the UK, all our work is underpinned by authentic NHS insights. Our in-house experts work closely with a national network of associates who occupy strategic, operational and clinical roles within the NHS. Leaders in their field, their knowledge and experience helps MTech Access to be as close to the front line of care delivery as possible. Please subscribe to the podcast or follow our LinkedIn company page for more information. Good afternoon and welcome to the MTech Access Words of Wisdom webinar. I'm Tom Clark and it's great to be back with the opportunity to speak to another prominent colleague from the NHS to examine yet another dimension of care and the uh, ever more complex integration puzzle. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Helen Ray, the Chief Executive of the North East Ambulance Service NHS Trust. Helen joined uh, NIAS in 2019, having been Chief Operating Officer at North Northumbria Healthcare, overseeing urgent and emergency care, medicine, child health and community services, with board level responsibility for emergency planning and preparedness. She's previously held senior executive roles across acute and community services in North Cumbria and South Tyneside. She's also a trained nurse and has held her professional registration for 30 years. So hopefully I've covered everything there for you, Helen. It's a very, very comprehensive CV you've got. Um, welcome. Thank you very much for joining me. Um, for everyone that doesn't know you, for everyone that's listening in at, at home, can you just briefly summarise your organization your, your role that you're in at the moment absolutely uh thanks very much tom for having me today it's a real pleasure so as tom said i'm the chief executive of the northeast ambulance service uh, we're an organization that covers uh, about three and a half thousand square miles with over 50 ambulance stations um i've been the chief executive here for mm, just over a year and a half uh, ambulance sector very different uh, as part of the overall NHS uh, structure, a really valuable um, interface organisation right across that whole integrated care system, which I know Tom and I will talk about uh, a little bit. Um, and Tom's given you my background, so probably yeah. nothing else I need to say in terms of introduction. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you, Helen. So. Obviously, you're currently at the Ambulance Trust. Um, many of our listeners probably have uh, a specific, possibly limited view of what Ambulance Trusts do, um, formed by what we see on TV, probably a lot of it casualty and, and things like that. Um, we've had conversations about kind of the breadth of what you actually do at the Trust. Can you just outline kind of the breadth of work that goes on, a few interesting facts maybe about the Trust, just to kind of dispel some of those myths about what an ambulance trust is. Yeah, thanks, Tom. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because I suspect uh, it's not casualty that people watch now to get their understanding of what an ambulance trust is. There's a, a programmes that are inside the ambulance where there is a, a fly in the wall documentary around uh, the paramedics and the work that they do. But that is only uh, a third, about a third of our organisation. So we, um, most ambulance trusts, but not all, um, are broken down into, into these three areas. So firstly, we have urgent emergency care, 
the thing that people traditionally think about um, when they're talking about the ambulance service. So, you know, the, the production of an ambulance at, uh, you know, the scene of an incident. And usually uh, people think about the transport of uh, someone to hospital as a direct result of that. What I would say in that vein is that uh, probably only about 40% of the cases we attend ever see the inside of a hospital. Our paramedics will see and treat the majority of the cases um, that they are called to at the scene. And um, it's not the glamorous sort of, oh, we're dealing with all of these high incidents on a daily basis. Actually, the majority of the time we spend uh, looking after patients with chronic disease um, and working with our partners for how we safely uh, keep those patients at home. We have a hazardous area response team as part of that, um, and they do the very high level attend the very high level incidents uh, because we border the northeast coast right from the Scottish border down to the Yorkshire border uh, we do see quite a lot of work with our Coast Guard colleagues we work closely with the fire services you might expect and closely with the police in that uh, blue light um, arena that everyone uh, is familiar with we also run a very big scheduled care um, service which in its easiest sense uh, is about you know the transport of patients to and from hospital for booked appointments and that can be anything from acutely unwell patients for dialysis um, through to you know the elderly who are going for their annual checkup with their geriatrician um, or and everything in between that and then lastly, and not all ambulance trusts in the in England or in the UK provide this, we have an emergency operations centre that combines uh, NHS 111, which is a very familiar number uh, now, I think, for, uh, for people out in the community, and of course, the 999 service. And we have an integral service um, for our call handlers built within there and follow a pathways uh, construct for that. And then obviously we have a very small, really, uh, support infrastructure for that. So in context, we uh, we have almost 3,000 staff in NIAS. Uh, I said we cover 3,500 square miles and we have an annual turnover of about 180 million, which in the context of the NHS places us as a small trust, a small foundation trust. Yeah, wow. So huge amounts. and and. I mean, we're going to get into it as, as we talk, but there's very few areas of care that you don't touch on as, as a trust mm -hmm. in one way or another. Um, what does what your workforce look like? You've touched on all those different areas. And, and again, it's not just yeah. paramedics, is it? Who else is, works for the trust? Yeah, so we have a, a real multidisciplinary workforce. Um, we employ, of course, paramedics. We have um, associates uh, to those areas. Um, which would, in hospital terms, uh, I suppose, be the equivalent of healthcare assistance with enhanced skills. So the ambulances would, might be dispatched with a paramedic and an assistant uh, within the ambulance, so two-person crew. We have um, a number of different nursing roles. So uh, Macmillan nurses work with us. We have uh, falls specialist nurses and we have advanced practitioners who work within our contact centre 
to try and um, signpost uh, the patient who is on the telephone to us to the right um, the right structure. We have doctors, we have pharmacists uh, also work within our um, organisation, um, and obviously we've got an infrastructure that involves um, HR functions, IT. Digital is extraordinarily important to us, and I think we'll touch on that um, a little bit later on. Um, but we have a very rich uh, and diverse workforce, not just a, a traditional workforce, and that is important for the future as we think about the way the services are being constructed and uh, we move towards a much more blended approach rather than traditional boundaries. So when I was a nurse, you've, you've mentioned that uh, just earlier, Tom, uh, it would be unheard of for the nurse to be allowed to get the patient out of bed because that was the physiotherapist's job. Now we've moved much more away from that sort of boundary and professional roles to a blended approach. And, you know, we're keen as an ambulance sector uh, to move that even further uh, for us so that we play a different role in supporting the, the system um, as best we can. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And uh, um, it's a shame we've only got an hour because already there's, there's huge amounts that I want to talk to you about. Just you, you touched on a couple of things there in terms of the, the things that you do as you trust the different people you've got. How much of a bearing on, on patient flows around a system does, a, does your trust have? Mm, so, yeah, so I, I would say, and you might be better asking a, an acute chief executive what they think, but I would say that we are um, really the lifeblood of that. So in the Northeast, we are the only organisation that interfaces with every other organisation. So the mental health trusts come close to that, but the ambulance trust is the only pan-regional service, and it is in most areas. Uh, you'll be aware, I'm sure, I'm not, and um, I'm sure that you know those who are listening are aware, there are 13 ambulance trusts within the UK, 10 of which are in England. Uh, and we work collectively as an integrated care community across those uh, 10 because within those 10, we reach, well, within the 13, we reach everywhere, including Ireland and Scotland. Um, but within the 10, we reach all of the organisations in, uh, in England. And that is powerful. Um, and there is more that we could do. I think, to uh, support the system in a more productive way. Um, if there was a different angle or a different understanding uh, of just what the ambulance service does. So I see us as the veins and arteries of the service. <laughs> That's a nice analogy. I like that. So what, what are your current pressures and, and how have those mm. evolved since the beginning of the pandemic? Gosh, uh, I mean, the pressures are significant right across the system. Um, I, I took up this post this in September, just before the uh, March pandemic. I, I had a few months in the honeymoon period coming in as a chief exec. I went on holiday and um, I was on holiday in Australia. I was very lucky to have friends. And this thing called COVID uh, was being talked about when I was on holiday in February. And there was some uh, great amusement about the buying of toilet paper. I'm sure everybody will remember. 
And I recall being in Perth and seeing the sign that said uh, free, cup of, free, free toilet roll with every cup of coffee bought. And it was a it was a little bit of a giggle, wasn't it? At the time, we all thought this is going to blow over like the flu. And uh, and I got a call, which is very unusual. My team are really good uh, at trying to give you a break. And they said, oh, Helen, we've been asked to go to York uh, to pick up uh, two patients that are COVID positive. So that was um, at the back end of um, the beginning of February. Uh, and from then, the pressure has ebbed and flowed, I think. So it hasn't been hugely consistent. I think it's been very consistent for hospitals. But for the ambulance sector, it's ebbed and flowed somewhat um, because of the down tooling of services for planned care. Therefore, we had much greater additional capacity in our scheduled care uh, services that we could redeploy to manage those those peaks and activities. Um, but since we've started to um, have much greater success with the pandemic, uh, with the vaccine through the pandemic, then we have settled at um, an activity level that is uh, circa 30% greater than when we went into the pandemic. Uh, that is very problematic because we are settling on that 30% um, at this moment in time. Of course, that is very well funded through, through the um, Secretary of State for Health and the COVID fund that has been set up. We know that that continues to exist for the first half of this year, but then as we move into the second half, that will change. So the the challenges to maintain that level of activity at that 30% growth are huge. So maximising efficiencies is a big um, target area for us at this moment. The maximisation, as I said earlier, of uh, the digital tech platforms that we've uh, that you know, we waited for for years and said, oh, these aren't possible, then made happen overnight because we had to, uh, needs must um, and and all of that. So uh, the, the, the big pressures for us are how do we, if this is to be the new normal in activity levels, how do we A, have sufficient capacity to do that, but B, manage that capacity in the most efficient and effective way. So very, very great pressures we aren't alone in that um but the it is different i think for the ambulance sector it is less visible um yeah, for okay. us in some ways and in terms of that workload is the case mix similar to it what it was mm. 18 months ago it's just more more of each type or are you seeing particular areas yeah there? yeah so um as we're emerging what we are seeing is our patients coming forward who have sat on their symptoms is probably a good way to put it. And therefore, those symptoms are um, more acute than perhaps they would have been if they had sought help earlier. There's been a real fear um, for people um, in relation to seeking that support and advice or guidance. Um, and we have with our frontline crews uh, dealt with many patients where um, actually acute intervention in a hospital would be the advice that we would give them who do not wish to go to the hospital because they are worried, A, because they're worried about will I contract COVID in hospital, although that has reduced hugely. That was a real fear at the start of the pandemic. 
and um, also worried because, of course, they can't see their loved ones in hospital at this moment in time. Those restrictions uh, are still in place and some of our patients know that they are close to end of life and therefore have elected to remain at home. Uh, so there's a different, uh, a dif different patient behaviour that is driving some of that level. And certainly at this moment in time, although whether this will remain or not in the modelling, we are unclear, there is definitely a lift in the acuity of the patients that we are seeing. Um, we suspect that is linked to late presentation um, yeah. rather than anything else. And a huge surge in mental health and we are seeing um, now, just in the last three weeks, a very big surge in paediatrics. Yeah, absolutely. The, the meeting I was in before this, we were talking about the, the surge in paediatrics in, mm. in A&E. But just um, that idea about the, the later presentation or greater acuity. So a, a lot of our audience, um, in, in the course of their business, they are dealing with long-term conditions, so be it COPD, diabetes. So as an example, that hypoglycemic attack or that uh, COPD ex exacerbation, something like that, where your teams are being called out to those, are they look are, are they able to manage them in the community? You're talking about people wanting to stay at home. Are they having a you know have they still got that proportion that they're dealing at, dealing with at home, um, or are they bringing more into hospital? Yeah, we do. We do have a proportion who we can manage at home, um, who have uh, are wired into some of the the great tech that allows them to self manage. You know, so you know, um, self testing um, that you know ability to um, make sure your your O2 levels are as stable as they need to be. That knowledge that you have background emergency meds that you can tap into should your you know, temperature escalate, etc. All of which is driven by some uh, really good home care devices. Um, but we still do have to take a significant number to hospital who potentially we feel could be left at home for treatment um, because that intervention is not available in a it's sufficient sufficiently timely it's not sufficiently timely at this moment in time um and we also haven't i mean i don't think the nhs has really exploited that ability to uh, for patients to self-manage at home we almost don't trust the patients yeah. uh, we don't treat them as the, their own expert uh, we're getting better at it i think in my very long career in the NHS of 38 years. It's come a long way, um, but it's still there's still a there's still an untapped um, opportunity uh, there. I think for for that self care. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So in in terms of your workforce, you touched on the, the breadth of people that you've got working for you. That ability to help people stay at home. Are you looking to make more tools either either sort of physical tools or, or skills based tools available to your mm. to your team so that they're better able to manage patients closer to home. Yeah, so we would really love to do that. Um, our problem as an ambulance service is that you need 
time on scene with the patient to be able to um, address that and set that up in the right way. Our setup um, in terms of our capacity and demand probably allows us a, a, a maximum time on scene if we are to hit all of the other standards and see all of the other patients in a, a, a timely manner. It allows us time on scene of about 35 minutes, which is woefully inadequate for the setup that we are talking about. The integrated care system, I think, in dealing with uh, health inequalities, um, as we move into that new frame, must grasp that opportunity to uh, level up that playing field, give uh, those patients who can manage and want to manage at home the skills and the devices that are available to allow them to do that because that will allow, for, for, for my mindset, us to focus on the recovery, the cancer recovery, the elective recovery, um, and make sure that the chronic disease, which is clearly, as you know, as the listeners will all know, associated with a real difference in the age demographic of the population, uh, to be able to manage in a much more constructive way. And I don't just mean individuals, in their own home, but actually how do we really embrace and engage with the care home sector within that who um, have a very transient workforce and would benefit um, much more from that um, standardization uh, of approach that could be brought uh, brought to bear through through these different routes. Yeah, fantastic. We're going to get stuck into into the integration bit in in a couple of minutes. Um, what are your priorities as a trust at the moment? You touched on a few important things. Yeah. So um, actually, we've just rewritten our five year strategy. So great timing to ask me that question. So <laughs> we is... for this, I'm sure. <laughs> That's right. We just we just knocked it up in the last week. Uh, we um, have developed what we call our P's and Q's. So um, we wanted something that was going to be quite snappy. So the first of our P's, uh, our priorities will be around performance and making sure that we um, have the, uh, this, the workforce and the skill set to be able to lift our performance, which is absolutely not where it needs to be at this moment in time and needs some work. Um, our second ambition is built on people. Um, we have a very tired and very fractious and very broken, in some cases, workforce. Uh, we're seeing a real lift in the numbers of our staff um, who are absent due to mental health uh, conditions. Um, we are seeing in hospitals uh, PTSD uh, post-management of the pandemic, so a really big piece of work. Uh, linked to the obviously the work that Prey and RSR is doing as the lead um, people officer for NHSE. So linking all that to uh, the people, our staff. And then partnership as part of the integrated care system will be really important. We would like to be the um, single point of contact for all urgent care um, appointments. So patients come through multiple areas. It is very confusing for them. It is inefficient. 
they will try three or four different areas. So I can't get through to my GP. I'll try 111. Oh, I can't get through to 111 because it's so extraordinarily busy. I feel a bit sicker than I did this morning. I'm going to ring 999. Mm -hmm. So actually, if we combine the whole efforts of all of those, we'd give a far greater service to patients. So that single point of access um, in our partnership approach um, and uh, supporting the system to keep those patients at home who can be at home. And underpinning all of that, of course, is our queue, which is quality and safety. So we have to be able to do that in a, a safe and uh, quality driven way and keeping the, the patient, if, uh, you know, the, the patient is king uh, in my mind. And, you know, you have to keep the king on the throne. Um, and, you know, so we look at the patient the whole time at the centre of that. So we are ambitious to do more for the system, but we need to be able to fix our performance to be able to start to grow and innovate. Uh, in a much more seamless and much more productive way, coming coming back to being those that vein and artery uh, that connects uh, the pieces of the the very wide jigsaw that is the northeast. Yeah, and that, I'm, I'm going to come back to that performance piece because I think that the idea of how performance is measured now and and how it might be in the future is one thing I, I want to come back to. So um, before we do that, we we saw last week the publication of the ICS design framework, which is giving a bit more detail on how, how the systems might evolve, how they might work in practice. Um, obviously, you've you just alluded to you being a big part of that. So what are your reflections on that framework? Mm. Yeah, so I think the design framework is, um, is OK. Um, it's very permissive, which I think uh, the chief execs, um, certainly in our patch, were um, really keen to see because you can't have a one size fits all. It doesn't really tell us in great detail yet how some of those key functions are actually going to look. So, you you know, people will know that the CCGs, the current commissioning functions will be dissolved uh, in favour of a new function for commissioning that will sit primarily at ICS level, but then with some devolvement uh, into uh, different areas. And everybody, of course, goes straight to the core, core of that bit, which is the money, because it's the money kind of governs uh, everything that, that we're doing. So getting those structures right um, on how that money is distributed to uh, fulfil the levelling up agenda, to think about what the public health uh, requirements are, to think about adult social care as well as health uh, within there. The framework does give that permissive approach to that. Um, personally, for me, the devil's going to be really in the detail of that. So um, where where does a regional service like ourselves sit as opposed to, um, say, Newcastle hospitals, which actually have a very contained boundary, but actually are a, you know, a billion pound organisation. So how, how does how do we have a voice as a 200 million pound organisation, the same as the, the billion pound uh, BMOTs that are the, the big acute providers? So, you know, a little bit more devil in the detail with that. I think it is very important that place based services take primacy uh, within this and that we don't just build in a repeat of the structure. So um, th there is some there is some risk 
I think that ICSs could start to replicate what used to be the old strategic health authorities and that we just build in tiers of governance that actually uh, make change or transformation very turgid. So we've got, we've got an opportunity to become much more fleet-footed and we've got to grasp that uh, through the permissiveness of the um, of the design framework as it stands. So build, building that up in the in the very best way, uh, so that you know we are engaged. We continue to be engaged with local authorities, and you know local authorities are nervous about about this big change. We're trying to push this change. We will push this change into legislation by the first of April next year. The last time we made a change of this magnitude in the NHS, we took about three years to do it, but we're doing this in a year. And so, um, you, you know, you do worry about the scale and the pace, um, getting this, being able to get this right. So as chief execs, myself and all of the other chief execs in our patch, this is the major focus of attention for us. Uh, over the next three to four months so that we're all comfortable to work in that framework in the very best uh, very best way that we can. Um, it's a great opportunity, I think. Um, it's a great opportunity for very quick improvement if it is managed in the right way. It could make a significant difference uh, to the way we um, manage our health infrastructure, uh, but we can't lose bring in our local authority colleagues uh, and you know our voluntary sector um our hospices all of those um great pieces of work that sit almost on the peripheries if we don't take the chance to wrap those in now we'll have lost something um along the way so place bases primacy getting the structures right making sure the money flows um, so that we can have the levelling up on uh, the public health agenda uh, that is really needed. Yeah, fantastic. That's a really nice summary there, I think. And, and one thing that we've heard with most, if not all, of the, the publications over the last six months or so has been that thing around the details lacking. It seems to be a bit of a common theme and, and obviously yeah. everything evolves a little bit. From your perspective locally, you talk about conversations with your other chief execs. I suppose finance is the one bit where you do need the detail, but aside from that, how much of the detail do you need and how much are you doing it almost bottom up as it were and having those conversations and determining mm. anyway, this is how we want to do it and then we'll make sure that we fit into the framework at the end point. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question, Tom. Um, I was on the, a meeting this morning actually with um, Sir Liam Donaldson, who is our chair, uh, the chief executives um, had the opportunity to talk to Liam uh, just about that subject just this morning. And um, for, for our ICS, we've been in shadow form really for almost two years. So we've had an integrated care system working um, really quite well uh, for that period of time. The system is built on it's it's not built on the governance, it's built on the trust that the people have between them. So if you look for the really great practice in the country, um, I would say if you look at Yorkshire uh, and what they have done uh, through people like uh, Rob Webster, uh, Tim Riordan, um, they have built us an infrastructure that works really well and they've built that from the bottom. They've recognised the... Um, 
the, they've recognised the influencers, they've recognised where the power base sits, and that is all grown up. You know, so let's let's have a grown up conversation about actually, you know, these people here over here hold a fair chunk of that power. So let's recognise that and let's use it to our best advantage. Uh, in the northeast, so we have the northeastern Cumbria, and I haven't touched on Cumbria because for my service, that uh, for ambulances, that's provided by um, uh, by Northwest Ambulance Service. But the interface with Cumbria is is important. Um, so you, you're only as good as the worst provider or the worst performance. I wouldn't say the worst provider. So where you have failing organisations, you have to fix that. If you have if you're having a grown up conversation, you have to fix that. And some of that will be at the expense of something you might want to do that puts a cherry on your cake when actually the other two organisations' cakes are still in the mixing bowl. They haven't got into the oven yet. So, you know, let's let's get them into the oven, get them to the stage where they can get the icing on before we start giving you your cherries and sprinkles. Um, and those are really powerful conversations that happen well in our ICS because we trust each other um, and we feel we can out those difficult conversations um, in a very productive uh, way. And we, we have to continue to be able to do that um, if we um, aren't to see uh, some organisations actually f fail further and others uh, flourish further. Yeah, fantastic. So you, you mentioned there about the trust between the organisations. In the North East, there's historically very strong performing organisations up there. There's also a really good track record of innovation um, from the North East. Do you think that gives confidence as well that even though there's challenges inevitably you are starting from a strong position yeah i do i mean you know the re the regional team um obviously have to be very happy with the direction of travel that we are uh, taking this in and um and they are they were part of the discussion uh, that i mentioned uh, briefly from this morning um so the it it does help to have um to be seen as a bit of a, a banker so you know yeah. we we are seen as a successful well-rounded um well-structured organization we have a very strong provider collaborative now um that came together in september to manage the pandemic but now is moving on to think through what do um what do our core clinical pathways look like uh, unlike most ICSs, all uh, providers are part of that uh, provider collaborative, all acute providers at this time are part of that provider collaborative. And that allows us to have conversations uh, once um, and to make agreements once and to kind of, you know, influence uh, the direction of travel. Um, it, you know, it doesn't it doesn't do us any harm to have some very strong players who play into some um, the big central uh, fields uh, in that mm -hmm. area. So we have that that reach both in and out. Um, that is that vertical and horizontal approach. That is the thing that I think binds us together. Uh, well, yeah, and and that the, the term provider collaboratives is one that. Is, is causing a bit of mystery uh, out there as to what they are and, and how they look. You just touched on the fact that you've had one up and running for a little while now. Um, 
how, how does it look and what does it do? If you could sort of briefly summarise, I'm sure there's, <laughs> there's yeah. lots that you want. So um, it's, it, its construct is, um, it's all of the acute providers, so Ambulance Trust, Mental Health Trust and the um, acute hospital trusts. Um, the, the things that we focus on are where we can do things uh, well and once. So um, a good example of that would be uh, we came together to talk about breast services and um, how disparate the breast services were across our patch. Um, we all agreed they were disparate. We collectively said what would good look like. And um, whilst that meant some give and get from organisations that provided those services, keeping the patient at the forefront of that, we actually very rapidly just agreed to change. Um, so that's a one great example of what a collaborative will do. Um, we have all joined together through uh, that collaborative to think through um, the elective recovery programme so that that included ourselves as ambulance provider and the mental health trust. So it could very easily simply have focused on um, the acutes and what their recovery needed to look like. But we've had a much greater rounded view. We're able to commission pieces of work uh, through our broad teams, uh, particularly through our excellent network of chief operating officers. Um, who, you know, as I say this uh, tongue in cheek because I was a chief operating officer for a very long time. Uh, the chief operating officers, they're the people who run the show yeah. uh, on our behalf as chief execs. They are a very, very valuable asset and a very strong team. So, you know, that ability just to come together to um, fix some things that actually have been uh, on the stocks for a long time. And then now we are focused on the forward view. Yeah. Um, and what that might look like, including things like, you know, what does the sustainability agenda look like? How do we get to uh, net zero uh, on our carbon footprints? All of those big, important things that actually we could we would do better together than we will we will as individual organisations. And, and that decision making process in terms of how, how that goes, who brings things to that forum and, and how is that decision made about what to pursue? Yeah, so we can we can all anybody can bring things to the forum and, and it, you know, to date, because we've only been really formed since September. Um, to date, we have really focused on urgent priorities that um, have focused in on COVID, uh, Tom, is, is the honest reality at this moment in time. Um, but the interface between the ICS and the provider collaborative um, will be a really great one going forward uh, because they will, in you know, in our thinking, uh, be um, tasked with the delivery of the strategy that the integrated care system um, alights on. So we we will be the work program for that. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. So ambulance trusts have, have historically worked across boundaries. You've, you've talked about that a little bit earlier. Moving towards integration, what can other parts of health and social care learn from the way that, that your trust has worked, from the successes you've had in, in, in working across boundaries? Yeah, so I mean, I think there's a huge uh, opportunity to learn about um, efficiencies 
from the ambulance trusts. So the fact that we work as a 10 and or a 13, depending on uh, which month uh, you're talking about, uh, to drive out efficiencies through things like the uh, model ambulance services, uh, single specifications for big capital spend like vehicles, um, you know, not building things where actually we could share resource or share facilities um, with other organisations. So that's not just from our ambulance trust, but we will share stations, for example, with fire service and police. So um, we're very capital hungry, um, I think, as an NHS, and there's much more that we could do to uh, hone back on that hunger so that that money could potentially be uh, reinvested. Um, we've we've embraced uh, technology, so all of our ambulances are kitted out uh, really well. With um, we use um, we use GTech as a, a component. Some ambulances are using iPads now. We have a, a, a care record, a Great North care record uh, now available to us. So, you know, all of that maximising uh, of efficiency and effectiveness within there. But the collab, so we talked about uh, collaboratives before. We, we're all working in collaboratives. There's no, there's no mystery to them. They're just partnerships. So if you're working in partnership with somebody, it can only be two of you or it can be 20 of you. You're working in a collaborative um, is the reality. So the mental health trusts uh, that work together are working in a collaborative. So we get we get hung up on the uh, language, I think, a little bit rather than thinking about uh, actually in reality, it's just a group of people coming together with a common cause um, and, a, and a will to, do, to actually fix something or to develop something further. Uh, or to transform, you know, uh, something for the in the best interests of uh, the collective, not necessarily just the individual. So, you know, we do that well across the acute ambulance chief execs um, and across the ten. Um, we have shared actually the we have a really great infrastructure. We have a managing director who looks after that. Um, we have a, a core small team that we all. Uh, contribute money to to maintain that team it's um you know set up as an arm's length it influences out into uh, the wider the wider um central government you know through nhs providers or nhs confed so all, all of that i think is something to be learned or picked up from what has been a very long-standing collaborative although we don't call it that across the mm -hmm. ambulance sector yeah, wonderful. Um, one thing that you, you mentioned briefly there was sort of digital technology and, and innovation. Um, another hat you wear is the digital transformation lead for the ICS. Forgive me if the terminology is slightly out there. Um, can, you, can you correct me on the terminology and, and just outline what that role entails? It's probably very interesting. Yeah, so, um, so I'm the senior responsible officer. So um, for all of our different work programmes, we have an allocated chief executive who um, supports uh, that work stream. So I'm the senior responsible officer for digital for the ICS. Yeah, and, and what does that role entail? Yeah, so um, so we run the we run the the digital uh, the digital program as a consortia board. So we drew together um, a consortia board, which is made up of um, providers and local authority um, representation, uh, and the current uh, clinical commissioning group. 
we um, agreed probably two and a half years ago, so before I was um, actually SRO, someone else was, um, we agreed a work programme that initially developed our Great North Care record um, to, to make sure that we had um, that connectivity between primary care community and secondary care um, for the core patient record that is now up and running and interfaced um, in between all of the acute providers and rolling out now to um, local authority which is really good and we're looking to see how care homes could um, actually be involved and access that too. Uh, we are looking at the digital uh, platforms and networks around um, radiology, pathology and haematology so that we have a single um, approach, uh, single preferred approach across the ICS for each of those areas. Um, we also work very closely with the academic health science network. Um, to just draw in all of their experience and the most recent piece of work that we are uh, working through is how um, our trusted research environment might be established. So we know that data mining, the, the you know data mining of NHS data is um, a huge thing that everybody would love to have their hands on. Um, the real truth of the matter is the public do not trust that at this moment in time. So we can't really get people. To, well, we, we will now because if 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 the if the, uh, if if the way to get on your holidays is that you have to have the NHS app and you have to be able to show your two vaccines, uh, I can guarantee millions of people will be downloading the NHS app who don't currently have it. And that will that, that I'm saying that a little bit facetiously, but actually that's a great route mm -hmm. in for the NHS to start to develop that in a much greater way. Because you know, we we I mean, you know, whether we're the fifth largest employer, I think, in the world, the NHS. And therefore the data that we hold because of the activity that we generate uh, is phenomenal and could be really um I mean, it is used really well, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, we have some fantastic research going on, but there is a, a greater level of, of opportunity within there. So we're looking at the trusted research environment uh, as one of our newer uh, work streams uh, within that digital frame. And we have a, obviously I said, we'll have a consortia board, uh, a mem membership driven, um, and it's, it's um, they all have a contribution, they all make a, con a financial contribution uh, to the infrastructure uh, aligned to that and it works yeah. it works really well and some you know some great work with there's, there's a you can access I don't know what the website is by telling you but there is if you just um, google in the great north care record if anybody's interested uh, there is a full website that gives you lots of information about the work that's going on um, and will signpost people to the digital uh, work as well. So, yeah. you know, have a look at that and it'll give you far more detail than I could uh, give you now because I'd have to spend a couple of hours on it. <laughs> Thanks, Helen. Um, we, we were having an internal conversation earlier, actually. That earlier this week, there was the publication of the data um, security document and, and you know, enabling a lot of what you've just talked about, the shared records and, uh, and yeah. patient um, or, or 
patient data for research. And just a reflection, I suppose that that piece around the COVID app, and actually, I think one of the challenges has always been how do you convey to the patient the value of them sharing their data? And, and it's always been hard to do that because the immediate use case hasn't been there. It's always been a case of one That's day right. you might need someone to access it, or one day you might need a medicine that someone's off developing and, and it's taken away, whereas actually that, that's probably a really good example. And um, we were also talking about the, the shared care records and just trying to get our heads around that. So obviously the, the one that you've got is, is well down the road. How does that work? Does it, does it sit on its own distinct system or is it just data that's held centrally that can be accessed through GP systems, through hospital systems? Now, you see, Tom, what you're asking me there is a technical question. Is that where we Google? Is that where we Google? Yeah, okay. That's where you've you've mined me out in terms of that. No problem. Over here on my shoulder, usually, would be sitting someone who understands the tech. Yeah, okay. No problem. We can we can go away and Google that because I think, you know, for for us, it's um, probably for everyone, it's it's kind of stepping into the future a little bit in terms of what's mm -hmm. possible and for sure. I suppose from from that perspective when you've got something like a great north care record at your disposal what difference does that make for you and your colleagues across the system in, in what you can do and how you can do it mm. yeah so it has it's made a huge difference uh, certainly from um, our perspective and from the paramedics perspective, um, you know, it's one of those things that the, the litmus test is, this, so we said, we're going to put all of this onto your uh, system. They said, oh God, Helen, go away. We don't want another thing put on our system. We're absolutely sick to death of having to access everything. And so we said, no, you have to have it on your system. And then we put it on the system and in, within six weeks, they said, don't ever take that off mind. Don't mm -hmm. take that off us. Uh, because what it what it gives is that instant ability to you know obviously access uh, patients' drug history, um, you know that what what they what they are normally like. So if you're pitching up and you're seeing someone in respiratory distress with you know O2 sats of you know 92, which might indicate to a paramedic normally that patient needs to go to hospital, that's their norm, and you can see that immediately on their Great North Care record. And you can see that they've got emergency meds that you can initiate while you're there. And they've got a core um, case worker uh, that is noted on there that you can drop a note to on that Great North Care record so that that patient gets a visit within 24 hours. You know, that's the difference that it that it can make having those records available because they aren't. it's not just the record, it's the connectivity that it offers uh, to the, the right person at the right time otherwise the time that you spend so I was talking about time on scene the time that you'll spend on the telephone trying to find someone who can support that patient if that ticks on too far you will just get a lift of that patient and a transport to hospital so that they are safe because the, the paramedics aren't their job isn't to deal with that chronic uh, that chronic disease episode necessarily so you know that that interface is great it allows the gps of course to see when a patient is admitted to hospital it allows them to access the discharge notes so notoriously 
the big fights between hospitals and GPs is about, you know, the discharge that are not being sent and the patient rocking up uh, and them saying, well, I you know, don't know anything about this. Access to tests that would normally be, um, you know, uh, difficult to get to. So it, it has it is transformational um, yeah. within the system. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, so I mean, I, whether it's happening or not at, at the moment, I'm not sure, but I, I can imagine that for the, that paramedic team, the mental health workers, whoever is going to see that person in their home or wherever they are, on the journey there, they can be looking at the notes and building that picture of who they're coming to see. So actually, That's when right. they arrive, it's okay, well, this is what we already know about you, therefore we understand this situation is likely to be either, yeah. you know, a, a recurrent situation or it's a one-off and, and, you know, how they might manage it so yeah I can see how already you're saving five minutes or so of conversation when you get there aren't you of you know what medicines are you taking all those sorts of things yeah yeah well let's hope that it it, it really takes off a pace as as it promises to um hopefully yeah hopefully um so many of our audience are from healthcare industries of, of varying types um what can you tell them about the importance of ambulance trusts for them in trying to reach patients or patients whether it be devices medicines diagnostics yeah so um um i would say when you're wanting to interface with the ambulance trust make sure you know your audience uh it's 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 really um we're very, really very different and i and i hope that that's come across a little bit um in the discussion today um so um, th think about uh, what the if you want to contact be in connection with the ambulance service think about what we really do uh, not what people think we do um, and you know do do that do that bit of research so I think when when Tom and I were uh, talking about me coming to do this um, I was really quite blunt uh, on a personal level and said if I get a cold approach even if I think that might be something interesting that starts off with um, can we help your hospital too? Uh, that will immediately go into my junk folder and I will block that sender. That is just how life works uh, because I probably get 10 or 15 of those contacts a day. But if that is tailor pitched well to me, um, then actually there's much more chance of us being, uh, us being engaged. I think um, I would also say from an ambulance perspective, um, be, being in contact with the bigger group of us um, in terms of the acute ambulance collective um, is probably uh, something that might be of interest to some to some people. Um, and again, ACE have a, a website um, that people can uh, connect into. Uh, Martin Flaherty is our um, managing director within them. We've got a small team. Uh, who are working on uh, digital uh, platforms, etc., for for us the whole time. Um, so you know, this this there are different kind of routes in, um, and also uh, the you know I'm, I'm probably preaching a bit to the converted and the things that you already do, but I always find it very helpful when um, we have that discussion through things like the NHS Confed or through NHS providers um, who um, have obviously a plethora uh, of interests um, and are also always um, keen to 
see some great case studies coming through um you know when when case studies are built actually i think that's what often builds the interest it's been it must have been really difficult i think for all of you with your connections to all of us uh, in the last year because we would normally connect at conferences and different things and be able to have that that face-to-face -face conversation and that and i suspect that has been really tough uh for, for a lot of people on the call today tom um, and hopefully we'll be able to to rebuild that. I know the last couple of things I picked up as uh, innovation packages that I brought back and um, and you know eventually introduced in the organisation uh, were picked up at conference uh, where we actually we could see things uh, in place because uh, the time the the time to pick up your emails and really read through them um, and say oh actually that would be of interest uh, to us as a service is is so limited um so you know i'm sure you'll all be as i am uh looking forward to getting back to that face-to-face -face contact uh where actually the um the imparting of the knowledge and the support that can be provided is much is much richer yeah absolutely i think we're all, we're all desperate to, to have a bit of a face-to-face -face time um we just got a couple of minutes ago so we, we were talking the other day about collaboration and, and how to work together and um, a lot of our audience will, will do that in particular ways and, and it's around redesigning pathways and various things and you, you told me about how you work collaboratively on designing ambulances it's not something I'd ever thought of can you just give us a, a minute or two on, on kind of that process and how you work collaboratively doing that yeah so that came about um from um the the model hospitals um uh, not from model hospitals from uh, the carter report and in the carter report when they looked at the efficiencies in ambulances because ambulances the the physical ambulances are our biggest capital spend uh, as ambulance providers and um we all had different different designs, different chassis, different manufacturers, different internals. So clearly that was inefficient, financially inefficient. So we worked together on um, designing a single specification uh, for the ambulances that we will purchase. That was very painful uh, because obviously people are wedded to the ambulance that they are currently in because they're used to it. And we have big box body vehicles and uh, the, the design that has been um, agreed is a van, um, which you'll see many other ambulance uh, trusts using. Uh, so there's the there's the purchase of the vehicle, then there's the conversion uh, to a standard specification, and then there's the kitting out of the inside uh, to a standard specification. Um, so all, all of that was agreed uh, between the 13 ambulance trusts, uh, so we could progress that. Um, but it took um, took two years to get to the yeah. point where we all agreed on um, a single specification. And, you know, in my trust, um, they will still be uh, very um, disgruntled is, the, is, a, is a reality uh, at the move from what they think is the Rolls-Royce of ambulances um, to what they feel is now, um, I think they call it the, uh, the mini the minivan or something of, of ambulances uh but you know there is a reality that you know we're part of the bigger nhs and um that reinvestment uh hopefully will go into frontline uh care in some shape or form so uh, that was a great piece of collaborative work yeah fantastic thank you very much helen we'd 
just about out of time now. So yeah, thank you again for, for joining me today. It's been a fantastic conversation. Uh, thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule. Thank you everybody at home for tuning in. Um, we're obviously all still learning about what the future of the NHS might look like. Um, every month we have another conversation. Next month I will be exploring cancer, the future of cancer services, treatments, medicines in the NHS. So please join us for that. Uh, if you want to know any more about what we do, please drop us a line at nhsinsights at mtakeaccess.co.uk. Follow our NHS Whispers page on LinkedIn. Um, we do a whole load besides these webinars uh, to support your market access strategy. Um, we are back on July the 30th, so we'll see you then. And until then, look after yourself. Thanks very much again, Helen. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye, everyone. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe for future episodes. If you'd like to find out more about our work with the NHS or how we can support your market access strategy, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk.